Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Creating Out of Nothing by Barnabas Asprey In my last article, I said that God is not an object in space-time. He is part of the fabric of reality, like the number two. He is transcendent, as if he inhabited a fourth dimension that we could not see and yet surrounds us, just as a two-dimensional creature could not see or conceive us, even if we could see them. However, Many transcendent beings could exist, like many numbers exist, but they would not be what the Nicene Creed means by the word God. The Creed also states that God is radically unique and that he created everything. To see what that means, we need an analogy. The Harry Potter books were written by J.K. Rowling. In them, she describes a fantasy world where wizards and witches can cast magic spells and perform supernatural feats with their power. The most powerful evil wizard is Lord Voldemort, who is the main bad guy in the whole Harry Potter series. But is Lord Voldemort more powerful than J.K. Rowling? Could he ever defeat her in a one-on-one battle? Everyone can see immediately that the answer is no, but why not? Rowling is just an ordinary person without any magical powers, and Voldemort is one of the most powerful wizards in the Harry Potter world. The reason Voldemort could never defeat Rowling has to do with the unique kind of relationship that they have. It's not simply that Rowling is more powerful than Voldemort. The truth is more absolute than that. Voldemort doesn't have any power of his own that Rowling didn't give him in the first place. Rowling doesn't really belong to the Harry Potter world at all, even though it belongs to her. In other words, Rowling has the status of creator in relation to the Harry Potter world. She decides everything about how that world works. She is nowhere to be found in it, yet she is present in a special way to every part of it, and every part of it depends on her for its existence. There is one way in which Rowling could enter the Harry Potter world. If she were to write a story in which she herself was one of the characters, walking about and interacting with the others. That character would be both created and uncreated at the same time, in the world yet not belonging to it. This might help us understand how Jesus could be both God and human at the same time. There are two limits to this analogy. One is that Rowling is not an absolute creator. She uses elements of her own world and ours to create the Harry Potter world. Colours, gravity, light, time, space, etc. She did not create ex nihilo out of nothing. The other limit is that the creatures in Harry Potter do not have free will. They can only ever do what Rowling decides they will do. The above analogy helps make one point clear. To say that God is the creator does not mean that God kick-started the world and then left it to go on its own way. An author of a novel doesn't only write its first line. The world couldn't possibly go on its way for a microsecond without God continuing to write it. 
The Christian doctrine of creation ex nihilo has nothing to do with whether evolution occurred or whether Genesis chapter 1 should be taken literally. It is far more fundamental than that. It says that there is no particle, no law of physics or nature, no moment in time that is not 100% dependent on God for its very existence. In other words, the Christian God doesn't live within our understanding of reality at all. He is the source of reality, the existence behind all other existence, far more concrete and real than anything else, spiritual or physical, ever could be. This does not count as a proof for God's existence, but just like the last article, it does affect how arguments about God's existence should be made. Nobody should ever think that they need to provide evidence that God exists, as if God were an object in space-time who could be measured or observed. It doesn't make sense to demand evidence for the existence of the source of existence. What would count as evidence? Let's return to the Harry Potter analogy for a moment. No one could ever find out more about Rowling than she chooses to reveal about herself. If Harry Potter were to find a magic spell that enabled him to talk to her, this would only be because Rowling had created such a spell in the first place. The only thing Harry could ever figure out without Rowling's help is that he did not create himself or the world he lives in. Either nobody did or someone else did, who Harry might want to call the unknown god. Nor does it make sense to ask who created God, a question that sometimes occurs to children. Either there is an infinite regress of causality, so that every source has another source behind it, and so on forever, or there is something we may accurately call the first, because it is the absolute source of everything. As the previous article showed, there are two kinds of real. One, contingent objects that may or may not have existed, like you, me, or any object we encounter in the universe. Two, necessary principles without which we can't imagine anything, like numbers and logic. For Christians, God belongs in the second category, so he doesn't need to be created any more than the number two needs to be created. The point of this article is to explain what the writers of the Nicene Creed meant when they said that God is the creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Like the Trinity, the doctrine of creation ex nihilo is not explicit in the Bible. If it was, why bother writing the creed? There are some people who interpret the Bible in ways that contradict the creed because it is possible to interpret the Bible, like any text, numerous ways, and no interpretation can be proven beyond question. But the writers of the Creed believe that creation ex nihilo arises from prayerful reflection on the implication of the whole Bible's message. If you're interested in the biblical case for and against creation ex nihilo, check out the reading resources outlined in this article on the main Seen and Unseen website. What about Satan? Isn't he the opposite of God? No, I would say Satan is not the opposite of God, just as Voldemort is not the opposite of J.K. Rowling. Satan is a creature like us, part of the universe and dependent on God for his existence. 
the Archangel Gabriel might be a more appropriate opposite to Satan. The only opposite of God is nothingness, which is the same as saying that nothing is the opposite of God. As to why God continues to give power to Satan, knowing he will use it for evil, that is a topic for a future article on the problem of evil. Keep listening to this podcast and you'll find it soon. David Baudil's Wrestle with the God Desire by Krish Kandaya I have been a David Baudil admirer ever since he penned the anthem Three Lions with his friend Frank Skinner. The song has provided a hymn of hope to every England fan since 1996. Football's coming home, I sing to my friends, family and TV screen every time England plays. Fans declare it out over the pitch, as though the louder they sing, the more likely it is their prophecy will come true. As the author of a song that has sought to inspire faith in the England team, it is perhaps ironic that David Baddiel's new book, The God Desire, is about why he cannot bring himself to have faith in God. I really enjoyed reading the book and the subsequent back and forth I had on Twitter with Baddiel. He comes across like the kind of guy it would be great to sit in a pub with and talk about life, faith and football until closing time. I hope I get the chance. This book, for me, offers three significant strengths and one major topic of contention. Badil offers what might be called a new, new atheist approach. He differentiates himself from the now old new atheists, like Professor Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchings, by challenging their machismo. Some atheists divine, correctly, that what religion provides for human beings is comfort, and then, in a way that can feel a bit adolescent, they feel impelled to say essentially, comfort? That's for babies. Badil refuses to ridicule the consolation of faith, and indeed seems instead to long for it. He is kinder, warmer, more polite than old, new atheists, taking a far less dismissive tone. Perhaps part of this comes from his deep and sincere friendship with Frank Skinner, who is a devout Catholic Christian. Their friendship is reflected in Badil's robust yet gracious approach to controversial topics. It is an approach that can act as a model for a lot of our discussions in increasingly polarised times. Badil's critique of new atheism also has an epistemological angle. He observes that in an age of social media, our relationship to the concept of truth has changed. He reflects that in previous eras, truths were handed down from authority figures, but now there is a democratisation of truth. Through social media, everyone can share their own truth. This is one of Badil's most interesting observations. In a moral universe dictated by social media, punching up and punching down are now the new markers of good and evil. And if religion is no longer considered a vastly powerful and high-status force, but rather a series of fragile and individual identity-based beliefs, then only the unkind would mock, then atheists become pariahs. I think Badil might be onto something important here. For some atheists, religion is still a huge and influential behemoth that needs to be taken down. 
We can see that in the aggressive anti-religious tweeting of Professor Alice Roberts or the theologically ill-informed op-eds of Matthew Paris. They punch up against the authority of religion. Others punch down from their morally superior position. They are prepared to issue something akin to an imperialistic judgmentalism against anyone who dares to identify as religious. But punching up or punching down says nothing about the truth or otherwise of the position. Instead, it speaks to relative social position. Like Badil, I believe both in the right to freedom of expression and in the concept of objective truth. This new tone permits Badil to admit that he recognises in himself the existential longing for the things that faith can provide. He writes, My argument, on the other hand, is, in a general sense, psychological. It requires an admission which, frankly, most atheists I've noticed aren't prepared to make, which is, I love God. Badil's coming out with his brave admission reminds me of those words of Canadian artist and novelist Douglas Coupland as he draws to a close in his book Life After God. My secret is that I need God, that I am sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem to be capable of giving, to help me be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness, to help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. Some might read too much into Badil's confession. A whole book explaining why he doesn't believe in God may seem then pointless, as though he doth protest too much. But for me, Badil's short book still feels important. It represents an internal wrestling match that many people can relate to, wanting to believe in God on one hand, but struggling to find the evidence on the other. Badil explores three reasons why he would love to believe in God. Story, parenthood and immorality. Firstly, he recognises a longing for meaning in life. He believes that belief in God can provide the possibility of life having an external story, offering not only direction and significance, but a source for moral evaluation. God also offers story. Humans have a need to organise, to structure the chaos of existence. They need to feel that life has narrative. Narrative requires satisfactory checks and balances, such as good being rewarded and evil being punished. God provides all this. He storifies life. With story comes another God benefit, meaning. A sense on an individual level that your own narrative has significance, that it matters in some way. This can only be the case if someone or something is taking account of it. Second, Badil notes that God provides an answer to the longing for there to be a benevolent force guiding us through the universe. Badil frames that in the need for a parent figure. God is this, an archetype, a super projection of a parent who can be both blissful and terrifying. This could be seen as a recycling of the Freudian critique of belief in God as an immaturity, a babyishness, as Badil might call it. But instead, it reads as a longing. Thirdly, and for Badil most significantly, God offers immortality. Badil puts it clearly. At heart, though, God is all about death. 
the other issues are spin-offs. Belief in God can help us confront the biggest fear that human beings face, the prospect of our own death. As a Christian, there is much to agree with in the above points. However, my main point of contention is very neatly identified by Badil himself. The God desire should not have led to the God delusion. Badil seems to argue that the very fact that he wants God to exist must mean that he can't possibly exist, that he must simply be a projection of his own desire. This is the exact opposite conclusion to that reached by C.S. Lewis following a not dissimilar journey to Badil's. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Badil concedes this line of reasoning, but reflects that desire in those cases are met by tangible, visible things, food and water in this case. He summarises that desire plus invisibility equals God. God for Badil seems to be so utterly transcendent that he cannot be evidenced, discovered, known. If he cannot be evidenced, then he cannot exist. But what if God, truly and utterly transcendent, has chosen to make himself known? And what if that revelation is right under our noses in the person of Jesus Christ? This is the central and astonishing thesis of Christianity, grounded in the evidence of Jesus' birth, his miracles, his teaching, and ultimately his resurrection from the dead. This evidence cannot be discovered merely by psychological reflection, as Badil has discovered. There are further historical, theological, spiritual, moral and scientific theories that need engaging with. I hope that Badil writes a sequel. In it, he would explain why his desire plus invisibility equation does not stop him standing up for universal human rights, for example. He would investigate the historical evidence for Jesus and the concrete experiences of millions in their connection with God. He would look further at the explanatory power that the Christian faith gives to life and see why compassion and justice matter. He would admit that his sense of the divine was evidence of God's existence. He would discover that his love for God had been met by God's love of him. I'm hoping one day there's a warm fire, a cold beer and a long night available to amicably talk these things through. In the meantime, I commend his book to you and encourage you with Badil to continue wrestling with the big questions of life. When Christenings Happened in Secret by Julie Canlis Christians today are baptised, often christened as babies, as part of an ancient entry rite into the church. Some of you listening to this were probably christened or have attended christenings as a conventional rite of passage. But 18 centuries ago, joining a church was not for the faint of heart. Baptisms happened at Easter, often in secret, and only after a semi-Olympic training of three years in order to be allowed into its secret membership. 
Every aspect of preparation was vital, almost brutal, aimed at the spiritual survival, certainly not bodily survival, of the church and its members. This was no pinky handshake. Why would people want to join it at all? This was an ordeal which, if one passed, meant public shame at best, and lions if the wrong emperor reigned. First, there was the obstacle of finding one. Churches were secret, often hidden in remote underground catacombs and undetected by officials. Those who risked their lives to bring candidates for membership into their secret fellowship had to vouch for character, because betrayal could mean death for all gathered. Enter the first godparents into the rites of the church. Second, one's profession could mean disqualification. If a gladiator, prostitute or actor was seeking admission, they would be given three years to stop their vocation and begin caring for the poor, the orphans and the widows of the city. Within these three years, they were only allowed to hover on the outer threshold of the church, increasing desire for the more classified rite of the Eucharist. Stock items such as the Lord's Prayer and the Creed were kept strictly confidential until the week prior to baptism. Never written, only memorised, lest they be handed out too early to those who would later fall away. All this was leading up to the clandestine rite of initiation, baptism, which occurred in the middle of the night on Easter Eve. After fasting until sunset for 40 days, enter the modern practice of Lent, these candidates would undergo final questions during Holy Week. They took part in daily exorcisms, rejecting all darkness in their life and culminating in the final renunciation. I renounce you, Satan, and all your works and all your empty promises. An ancient description of bling. They were also examined by the local bishop for whether their lives were characterised by social justice. Were they caring for the sick? Were they living according to the obsolescent class system or into their new reality as equals? Were they treating their bodies as temples of God? As one fourth-century bishop exhorted in the middle of Easter night, why do you stand there, different in race, age, sex and rank, who will soon be one? Baptism was the great leveller, like death. And die they did. Earliest baptisms were held in secret, but as Christianity was sporadically tolerated, people were baptised in mausoleums, Roman funerary buildings, to communicate very loudly, you are coming here to die. These primitive structures continue to be unearthed all over Europe every time a new underground route is being laid or a skyscraper is being dug, and the foundations tell all. Large fonts to walk down into, shaped like crosses, octagons or even wombs. Here you go down to die and be reborn. Archaeology reveals hooks on walls for cast-off clothing, for the candidates were to become like newborn infants again. Plunged into the waters three times, they emerged naked and were clothed in white, a symbol of overcoming suffering and of primal innocence. In this upside-down society, one went into the water having been classed as a competent one, impotentes, but was upgraded after baptism to the nickname of infant, infantes, even higher praise. And the reward? Finally being admitted past the gate 
origination of the church narthex into the sanctuary itself to take part in its contraband banquet, the bread and wine. Modern day christenings might appear fairly benign on the surface, but they still bear vestiges of this older, more perilous rite. We have godparents, white garments, and a triple splash of water. The Book of Common Prayer still requires parents and godparents to renounce Satan on behalf of the baby, that supposed figment of our imagination. And although we have lost much of the symbolism of death and rebirth, one thing hasn't changed. This adorable baby will still die. For the ancients, one's death was merely the completion of baptism, in which one had already begun the art and process of learning to die. Baptism didn't keep one from death, but baptism baptised death and allowed one to get on with living. You've been listening to Seen and Unseen Aloud. In these early episodes, it makes a huge difference if you can rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening. And it helps others to discover the show too. Thank you. You can also find more episodes, podcasts and articles at seenandunseen.com.